0: this is Salt and Spine.
1: The same reason I had originally gravitated towards art, which was that it wasn't just words. I thought the same thing about food, but also that I thought you could talk about bigger ideas and you could sometimes, you know, you could talk about things that don't always seem palatable. You can talk about politics and economics and gender and all of that stuff. You could do that and still make it fun and still make it accessible and make people want to read it.
0: Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine Stories Behind Cookbooks. Remember, there's never been a better time to support independent bookstores. Many, like our friends at Omnivore Books in San Francisco, are happy to ship cookbooks to you. It's also a perfect time to join an online cookbook club, diving into a new or beloved cookbook with folks around the country. You can find more information on how to support authors and bookstores, as well as which books are being featured in this month's cookbook clubs on our Instagram page at Salt and Spine. Now, you just heard from today's guest, Charlotte Druckman. Charlotte is a food journalist whose work has appeared in nearly every major food outlet, from Food & Wine to Bon Appetit to Cherry Bomb and national publications like The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and more. She's also the co-creator of Food 52's Piglet, the much-loved, though now-defunct, annual cookbook tournament. We recorded this conversation, remotely, just before the highly-praised compilation that Charlotte led, Women on Food, earned a James Beard nomination last week. And now her latest cookbook, Kitchen Remix, 75 Recipes for Making the Most of Your Ingredients, couldn't have come at a better time, as people are spending more time in the kitchen. And the remix concept takes three ingredients, many of them staples, and offers three suggested and usually quite different recipes using those items. Take for example her chapter on zucchini, pistachio, and mint. She starts off with a slow-cooked zucchini with ground pistachios. Then you'll find a recipe for a raw, minty-fresh zucchini salad with marinated feta, and then finally an olive oil zucchini bread that's studded with fresh mint and pistachios. We've got a great conversation to share with you today, and we're talking with Charlotte about the path that took her from an art history student to a preeminent food journalist, about how she came up with the idea for a Food 52's Piglet and then fell into a career as a cookbook author herself, and about her work on gender in the restaurant and food media worlds. Plus, of course, we're playing a little game. We're going to put Charlotte to the Kitchen Remix test. Also, Paula Forbes, editor of Stain Page News, joins us to preview new cookbooks in May, and we have featured recipes from Kitchen Remix remix for you to make at home all of that this week on salt and spine one note about today's show as we move to virtually recording our interviews for the first time we're still adapting to new systems we did have some audio quality issues that we worked hard to resolve and we hope you forgive us for any blips you might hear in our show today with that let's head now to our virtual studio where charlotte druckman joined us to talk cookbooks hi charlotte how are you
1: hi i'm good
0: Ish, Great. how are you? Good ish <laughs> as well. Thank you so much for joining us for remotely, virtually on Salt and Spine.
1: My pleasure, and so nice to see your face. The first time we've ever seen each other's faces that, you know. This is as close to it in-person as we've ever gotten.
0: It's true. We've talked on the phone a number of times, but it's it's so great to see you. Um, And we're here to talk about you and your career and your books and your most recent cookbook too, Kitchen Remix. Um, But we always like to start at the beginning. So beginning of your life. I know you, you grew up in New York City. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes, I did. I and
0: did. you your I think your mom was a good cook and cooked pretty frequently
1: I yeah think. my mom is is still a, she's a really good cook um we're di- we're different cooks it turns out but she's a really good cook and she cooked pretty often like weekends were always the big mom's big cooking. And then she would cook on weeknights, actually more for my dad until we were older. And then sometimes for us, but we also went out to dinner a lot. My parents went out to dinner a lot. And then once my brother and I were old enough to not completely embarrass them, we went with them. So I had a very well-rounded precocious in a lot of ways, um, experience as a restaurant diner as well as just an eater in in general i think sure and i
0: i read that your mom had a fair amount of cookbooks growing up too right and that you were sort of interested in them as a kid is that yeah, fair to say?
1: she did i mean she still does she's she's recently tried to like winnow them down because she was they were getting you know unwieldy although compared to me if she knew how many cookbooks i had like she'd freak out Just be like, I I can't work with this. Um, But she did, and I I loved them. I mean, I think just because I was a reader and I loved books, but I always wanted to see what she was making, what it was. She also would... um, tear a lot of recipes out of she has like old Craig Claiborne's from the New York Times you know sure. she would be tearing things out of gourmet she would tear things out of food and wine and so it's interesting to see how she's responded to the digital age you know she still prints out recipes and then hand yeah. writes on them and she also she had recipe cards um it's really funny my mom has terrible handwriting like she okay. will tell you this terrible handwriting. And so she would painstakingly write out these recipes, but then like no one could read them, but her, they're completely illegible. And right. um, so I would look at them and have to be like, mom, even now, sometimes she'll, I'll, I'll ask her for a recipe and her way of sending it to me is just to take a picture of the illegible recipe card. and right. And I'll have to ask her like 14 questions about like, the heavy cream like I don't what's happening here with the heavy cream so yeah um but yeah she really she goes well it's interesting to me too to have watched how she's changed as a cook just in terms of that someone who started cooking in you know I'm gonna say early 1970s probably like late 60s early 70s really when Uh, she got married she got married in 1972 and she was was learning off of Julia Child she had like the you know, the Time Life book series, things like that. But very much kind of that Julia Child, you know, that kind of like, I don't want to say woman of privilege, but yeah, that thing where it was like she cooks because she felt like she should cook for my dad, but she didn't have to cook. So it was a lot of that kind of like, yeah, like Craig Claiborne, French informed sort of bougie cooking of the early 1970s. And now to see what she cooks, you know, now she she's she cooks Allison Roman recipe. She's like, I just Stop. cooked Allison recipe for this. She right. who doesn't lives? Yeah, she lives for Melissa Clark. But I've also uh-uh. seen her do some stuff. Like, she'll be like, I saw this recipe in the New York Times, and it was for this chicken dish and it had turmeric, and it was from this woman who had written a Persian cookbook. I'm like, was it Naz Doravi? And she's like, yes, it was that. I'm like, yeah, bottom of the bottom of the pot, right. It's a great cookbook. So, um, you know. It's been yeah, it's been it's been really nice to see that. Not not you know not that she didn't cook outside of French stuff when I was younger. It just always still felt like it was coming from that perspective, and yeah. it's just been nice to see that shift. It's also just you can see the historic shift. Like she went through her Ina phase. Like she you know
0: sure yeah. It's interesting because it seems like I'm hearing you describe your mom's cooking, and it seems like she's a person who relied pretty heavily on very recipes much. and cookbooks. Very, and
1: very much. Some people <laughs> sort
0: of just cook naturally without yes. turning to a cookbook ever. Did that sort of impact how you approached cooking, the way that you saw her mm-hmm. rely on those so heavily?
1: Well, this is one of the ways in which we're very different. Um, okay. My mom is a control freak. She doesn't, she's not, She. I mean, she will admit this. She's not the most adaptable person, right? So it's like she has a system and she follows the system. I, maybe it's because of the sign I was born under. I'm a Gemini. I can, I, I don't know. I live to adapt. So I see a recipe and my first thought is like, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do that. So to me, recipe has always been an architecture I can mess around with Um, Uh, as long as I keep whatever the sort of like, you know, bearing walls are. So we're very different in that. And I'm also someone who, while I'm in the middle of cooking, will be like, and I think I'm going to know, you know what, I would add extra lemon zest. This doesn't look like enough lemon zest to me. She will add things and stuff, but it's just, everything is very, very planned out. And she's not someone who would just like the way that I just did my cookbook was I would think about three ingredients and be like, okay, where am I going to take these ingredients? And then I would sort of reverse engineer accordingly. That's not my mom. Um, Maybe my mom taught me to trust recipes because what I like to do a lot is in my mind, I get an idea for something I want to make. And then I will start thinking about who I think would have done not the same thing, but like I want to make something with like chicken legs, and I know that I want to brine them. I'll think, who's the person I trust on brining chicken legs, and I'll go there. But then I also want to do something where I get the crispiest skin possible. It might not be that person, so I'll start going to different people who I think are the best at what they do, and then I'll start pulling things and putting them together. And so I have, you know, it's it's like a. Dr. Frankenstein (laughs) made made a monster (laughs) Um, and it's my recipe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you you grew up with a good amount of home cooking. You were going to restaurants at various points in your childhood and teens. Then skipping forward quite a bit, you go to college. I think you went to Penn. Is that right? I
1: did. I went to Penn. Yeah.
0: And you, you studied English?
1: I was an English major and an art history minor.
0: Okay, English and art history. Were you at any point up until then and in college sort of thinking about food as a career?
1: Not as a career, but I, I loved cooking for my housemates. And I would okay. also, again, I was always experimenting. Like I went through a phase where I just it was like, I really just want to see all the things I could possibly do with wonton wrappers. Like uh-huh. it would just, and I didn't think about it at the time. Or I would remember something my mom had made and said, Mom, can you send me the recipe for this? I always I always liked to do it, um, especially after I left my parents' house, because as you maybe can imagine, my mom has her ways in the kitchen. Uh-huh. So the amount that I was allowed to cook at my parents' house and what I was allowed to do was actually pretty limited. Okay. So to get out of there and then be like, I'm going to play with wontons. Like, trust me, no one was playing playing with wonton rappers like in the Druckman household when I was a kid. Sure. So yeah. <laughs> so
0: you started experimenting with food just for fun, feeding yourself, feeding yeah. others. Yeah. And, that, and obviously, folks know you're a food journalist now. Did you know you were going to go into journalism at the time, or did both sort of food and journalism come later? Mm-hmm.
1: I is interesting. I really wanted to be either a journalist or an editor in chief. Which those okay. things are related but they're not the same and it kind of yeah. took me a while to to figure out that you you can't do them both or you can't do them both at the same time. And I think in college I was more sort of like magazine editor in chief driven in that sense. But I took a detour. The reason I mentioned my minor being art history was that after I graduated from Penn, my first job out of college was as basically a junior copywriter, ad and packaging copywriter um, at a division of Estee Lauder. Okay. And I had interned at a number of magazines when I was right before I went to college and throughout college. And then I took this job at Estee Lauder because I'd gone to Penn and I noticed that all the guys who went to Wharton and even guys who didn't go to Wharton, but decided they wanted to be in marketing, were getting recruited and wooed and paid all this money to do jobs that sounded very kind of abstract to me. And I thought, that's not fair. I can do that too. Maybe I'm going to go work in corporate America. Right. <laughs> what can I do in corporate America that involves marketing and is creative and where I can write? And I, this is how I end up as a junior copywriter, Estee Lauder. I sure. hate it. And the thing that was interesting was that what I kept missing or wanting or craving was not reading novels like an English student, not actually writing articles for a magazine. It was, I missed art history. I missed it terribly. I would be supposed to, I would be assigned to write a positioning paper for a new cologne. And I would start mentioning Constantine Brancusi sculptures. Like it just, I don't know what was going on with me. So I decided I wanted to become an art history professor so I could teach and I could write about 20th century art and theory. And so I took a detour. I worked in an art gallery so I could apply to grad school. Um, I got accepted for a PhD program. I completed the master's. I then got accepted again. It was a whole... Very old fashioned school, very stodgy. You had to sort of get accepted twice for the PhD. I got accepted again to go on for my PhD and I left because I missed the real world too much. And it was doing that that made me miss, actually miss magazines, miss pop culture. I've always been sort of like fascinated by whatever the in-between places where you can kind of take intellectual thinking and pop culture and find ways to bring them together and make them accessible. I'm not interested in the inaccessible part, which is, which is, is too much of the academic grad school thing. Um, sure. So anyway, that was how I got back into magazines and publishing. And again, I went and worked on staff at magazines, still had no interest in doing food. I loved food. But because I had come from that academic background, I felt like you should write about things you had studied. And I had not studied food. Food was just this big part of my life and something I thought about all the time. But it felt like you can't just become a food writer because you like didn't go to graduate school for that. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I quit. My last staff job at a magazine was it oh the oprah magazine and it was i was the marketing not it was like the the style i was actually the style editor which really consisted of me being responsible for things like the uh, uh, oprah's favorite things pages Uh you can imagine a lot of stuff so it was a lot of curating of stuff and i wasn't writing and i thought i'd be okay with that and i really wasn't and it wasn't It wasn't a job that was going to take me anywhere I wanted to be. I didn't want to be someone who was a product editor. Um, And so Dana Cowan, who had been my boss at Food & Wine and was really great to me, said... You know, everyone goes freelance at one point in their life. You should freelance. I still haven't filled your old job. You can just be a contributing editor. And honestly, that never happens. It never happens that before you even go freelance, someone wants to make you a contributing editor. So I was really lucky. Yeah, that was how my freelance career began. When I worked at Food & Wine, I was not writing about food. I was writing about design and entertainment and not like, you know, how to throw dinner parties, how to buy a stove, how to buy a grill. Really like things that had that I always said I did everything and the kitchen sink except food. Um, so I wasn't writing about food and it was only once I went freelance and I started to think, you know, I could write about anything. I get to write about anything now. I can, I can do stories on fashion. I can do stories on, you know, travel I can do. And I thought, what if I just write about food for fun? I love it. What if I, and that was in, I, I left oh, the Oprah Magazine in 2005. So okay. I probably started writing about food maybe like the, the year after that, like in like 2006. Sure. And I felt like once I started to do that, a few things. I felt like food had that same, the same reason I had originally gravitated towards art, which was that it wasn't just words, but also that I thought you could talk about bigger ideas and you could sometimes, you know, you could talk about things that don't always seem palatable. You can talk about politics and economics and gender and all of that stuff. Um, I thought the same thing about food. You could do that and still make it fun and still make it accessible and make people want to read it. You know, um, but also I found my voice as a writer. My writing came easier to me. I felt like I was writing the most like myself. When and you so started I did. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I did. And I just never... Looked back and yeah, and it was also it, it it allowed me. I had started to question the whole women and gender in the food industry in the restaurant industry as far back as Food and Wine because of Best New Chefs, right? And it was just sitting there in my head, and you know, also going freelance kind of let me start doing projects where I could look at that more and then ask myself what I wanted to do with it. So all of that stuff came out of me deciding it might be fun to try writing about food. But it definitely was not a goal of like an ambition of mine job wise. Sure. To do that. Yeah.
0: And then you wrote your first book. I think i you did this right, Skirt Steak is your first book. Yeah. 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 Um, in 2012, which yeah. compiles interviews you did with dozens, I think 70 something women in the restaurant industry. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, I call it a communal memoir because I don't know what else to call it. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> And it's not a cookbook. Um, that no. that skirts sake. It's not a cookbook. And you mentioned that mm-hmm. you sort of were thinking about those themes of women in the restaurant industry and challenges that women face, and not just challenges, but like issues with recognition and equality and um, yeah. all of those sort of related aspects. Was there something that prompted you to do that first book, or what sort of led you to yeah, decide? Yeah, it that's was. The
1: first I had written um, an article for Gastronomica, Dara Goldstein. It's really amazing when you look back and you think about these small decisions, like someone letting you write a story and then... Where you end up because of that seemingly really small decision or break or, you know, Um, I had pitched to Dara. I had I just really loved Gastronomica because, again, it was sort of like an academic journal for people who loved food. So it's not surprising that I gravitated towards it. Um, And I said, I want to take a famous essay that an art historian named Linda Nochlin wrote. And I always forget when she wrote it. I think it might have even been very—it's either very late sixties or again, like seven, like early seventies. It's called. why are there no great women artists? And it's a question and it's posed rhetorically on on purpose. Um, And it was a really interesting essay in that she's writing it during the time of sort of the the height of not just feminism as a movement, but feminist theory being applied in academia, being applied in art history. And a lot of that was um, essentialist, meaning it was sort of like, well, women do this differently because we're women. So we paint differently. We paint shapes that look like this. We write stories that have these types of plots because we are women." And her whole thing was to turn that on its head and say, what if it's institutional? What if it's more a product of history and socialization and what women have been allowed to do than it is about what women are able to do genetically? So her whole thing was to say, if you define, if you look at how great was defined, and then you ask yourself, how possible would it have been for a woman to qualify for that? Maybe then you will realize that it wasn't for lack of artistic talent. It was for lack of fitting into the criteria. And when I was at Food & Wine and I saw all of these women who I looked up to and are wonderful and are not sexist and smart doing Best New Chefs every year and having a really hard time finding women chefs my first thought was not, I don't think there are any women chefs. My first thought was, I wonder what the criteria are because I have a feeling that the criteria is really limiting unless you're a certain type of person, which yes. turned out to be white male and having studied a kind of food and worked in a certain type of restaurant. And so that had set it in motion. And um, when I, so I knew when I, when I asked, Dara. I was like, I want to do it. And I want to do it as a riff on Linda Nocklin's essay, which is a thing you can do in an academic food journal. You can't necessarily <laughs> you know, do that. And after I wrote that, and I want to say that came out, I think I wrote it in 2010, but I think it was published in 2011. The response to that was, I think that people wish that I had interviewed chefs. Instead of had it be, had it be so kind of like analytical and, you know, and that was what made me start to think that maybe there was a book that I could do where I could get women who were chefs to talk about this, you know, and women who had succeeded where the conversation wasn't about what we didn't do and how we right. didn't make it, but how we, how we did it and what all, and what the hurdles were and how it all works, how the system works. And so that was, that was skirt steak. That was how that yeah. happened.
0: Did you, in doing that book and interviewing 70, 70- three women oh, did, chefs they, yeah. did you did your eyes open to anything you hadn't already thought about or did your viewpoints change significantly in any way and you had been like thinking about this for years
1: yeah it, it was i think you know i i realized really how many chefs there were you know i assumed that there were more women chefs than we thought but but i didn't realize just how many there were And Uh I think what was sort of frustrating for me about that book was that it was like if I had had more means, (laughs) more more of like an infrastructure, more money and more time to think how many. I mean, at some point, the way I did the book, because it's really written, it's not like Q&As, it's like really a a written prose book. And and you wanted to weave in women's voices. And at some point, if you have too many, you kind of lose, you know, but I, I do wish... I would have liked to have done a project where I really got like to go to other parts of the country, like not just like coastal or major cities. Like that, that was sort of, I realized how much was out there that I wasn't seeing. Um, yeah. But most of my theories about how things work um, were just kind of underscored and proven <laughs> um, sure. by yeah. going out and talking to, and just finding and just deep on a deeper level, you know, I also just, I think seeing how many of them had had to sort of work against a system in order to succeed in the system—that to me is always really a really powerful reminder. Um, and also talking to the chefs who were who were parents as well as mm-hmm. working chefs and how that worked—that was something I don't think that I had really thought a lot about. I think it was kind of like the excuse given by men. <laughs> For why women don't stick it out was that, oh, because they want to have kids. And so talking to to women who had kids and had also gone on to succeed as executive chefs. Sure. I remember that being something that was really moving, but also where I, I felt like I was learning something I definitely didn't know because I wasn't a parent. So yeah. yeah. Yes.
0: I always think of Nancy Silverton like talking about running up and down between like her apartment and like raising a child and baking bread at like 4 a.m. and just like. Yeah,
1: I think the two takeaways from that that are still, that's still like really like they, They're still completely relevant where that most of those women said that they always felt like they were being shitty at both things, right? That if they were too focused on the restaurant, they felt guilty because they weren't being good parents. And if they were focusing too much on their kids, they were being shitty chefs and shitty bosses. And you know, that feeling, which I think is something women experience across the board in any industry. Um, But I think it's especially hard in food because your hours are just so insane, you know. Um, And then the other thing was that most of the women who had figured it out had done so because they had their own businesses. There were very few women working in other people's restaurants who had kids and had been able to achieve that level of success.
0: Sure. I want to get to your cookbooks in a second, but um, yeah. last year you published Women on Food. Um, Yay,
1: Women on Food! Which, yeah, which is wonderful.
0: Do that as like a successor to Skirt Steak in some ways, like a kind
1: of, of work of yours. I, it, kind of, but it wasn't. Again, like I'm not. I could be a better. I feel like I could be a better like career planner person where I had like a singular agenda and like that was what I did. And I had like a five year plan and stuff. And unfortunately, that's not how my, again, it goes back to the recipe thing, not like my mom (laughs) just can't like it like that and i actually thought after i did skirt steak that that was it for me with the whole women's thing like i was like okay i've exhausted this and i and i'm not someone who likes to do one thing i get bored easily and i like to be challenged so i'm like well i did that now i want like what what's next you know um so if you had told me after i wrote skirt steak that i would be writing another book about women in in the food world i would have thought that like you were just a really crappy fortune teller. Truly. I would have been like, that's never doing it again. Um, but I got really riled up after the Me Too groundswell hit the food world. Like very upset and upset um, in a way that was more personal even than I had about skirt steak, I really started to think about women in food media and how we had been treated and been held back and just the legacy of food writing and food editing and food content, whatever the whole genre of, of food editorially. Um, that was where women and food came from. and And also wanting to do something creative. I think I really wanted to do something that was like we got to make a statement, and and where I wasn't just writing, I also what I really loved about that book was that I got. It sort of goes back to my loving, you know, magazines and wanting to be an editor in chief and being obsessed with tables of contents. It was like right. I kind of finally got to do that without realizing that that was what I was doing until somewhere in the middle of it, I was like, "Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> you know what this
1: is like, yeah." Um, so yeah, that book, I think for for me and I love my cookbooks, which I'm glad we're going to talk about, but that book is the most me thing that I have done. And yet on the other hand is also so entirely and wonderfully collaborative that it's actually really hard now to imagine what I can do that will be like that again, because it was magic. Like, that yeah. whole experience for me it was it was a lot of work it went really fast but it was just I don't know it was like everything I like to do in one project
0: and your description earlier of being interested in sort of the space between intellectual and pop yes. culture it feels like yes. this like, it, is. That.
1: it is entirely that without my ha- it was so organically that without my having to sit there and think about how I could make it that it just was that it manifested and I think that's why I, I'm i so attached. Attached to it. Also, I I also feel like it was, you know, when I did skirt steak, I don't, I think that there was a lot of myopia in it. You know, I don't, I didn't really didn't address. And I said this in the introduction, you know, it was, it was mostly white women. I I felt like it, the thinking that I had applied the sort of like methodology I applied in skirt steak could be applied to any community in any industry. And that I hoped people in those communities would go and do that. But for me, women on food just feels it feels really inclusive, and I don't just mean that in terms of like race and culture. I mean it just in terms of like people who are coming from different parts of the industry and at different ages, and just like they're different formats of. I mean, literally, they're different formats because they're essays. So I think, in that sense, it's hard to look at it as a successor to Skirt Steak. Cause it just feels like, I think that they're companion pieces in a lot of ways, but I also feel like women on food, it feels so much more evolved to me, you know, like I'm very glad I did skirt steak and I'm glad that I did it when I did, cause it was before people were really talking about gender in the food world. in my generation, people have come before me and done it, you know, in, in another decade, but it was, yeah. it was really the first time someone had said, let's, how do I, you know, how do we do this? Um, but I think women on food is just a much better realized book in a lot it's of ways.
0: True. Yeah, it's tremendous. I feel like it's like five years worth of like magazines content <laughs> women and food just compiled into one one volume. It's
1: a lot. And it only works it only works if you have women in it who are willing to give as much as the person who's putting it together is. Like it would have yeah. failed if the if the essayist didn't step up on their essays and the women who filled out the questionnaires didn't you know what I mean? Like it's a lot of it's me, but a lot of it it was was really, I keep saying it was like a, you know, a trust exchange. So it it really, it's all of us. That book depended on all of us, which is why I think it's so special.
0: Last sort of question on this realm before we move into your cookbooks, having just come off of writing or compiling women on food and editing that volume now, you know, seven, eight years after you just skirt steak, you've been thinking about these issues for a long time. Are we like moving in the right direction when it comes to fairness and equality, specifically around gender in the restaurant industry and the food industry? Is there like, are we making progress? Is there more to obviously there's more to be done, but like wh- where yes. do you sort of see things as they are today as someone who's spent so much time thinking I about don't,
1: these issues? Okay. <laughs> I don't know if someone has plotted this in terms of how cultural change works. I don't know what the space between once people start talking about something and worrying about the optics of something and then an actual institutional change happening what, that, what yeah. that projection looks like. I do not feel like we have actually seen significant institutional change. I can at least say in food media that until I see women publishers, more women editors-in-chief, women with power, women who have money to invest in each other until I see those things. And also more than that, I just think the way that we go about doing our jobs, this is true of restaurants, it's probably even more true of restaurants than it is of publishing, although publishing is completely entrenched and backwards too. So we have one system, we have one model that we judge all of these things against, like one model for how a food Newspaper section is supposed to look a food magazine a lifestyle magazine is supposed to look how a restaurant's supposed to be structured and until and those structures have been put in place by I, I hate to say because it, it sounds so generic by by white men yeah. um, until and white men who's who went through a certain course of training, you know, until we can come up with other viable models that are started by other people who've had different experiences and taken different trajectories. And until those can be financially, because we live in a very capitalist world, as we all know, financially viable and profitable, and we can see people investing in those, it's really hard for me to sit here and be like, everything's looking rosy to me. I'm seeing a real uptick. Like, I just don't believe that. Um, I think what's really sad right now, something that I've been thinking about because of what we're dealing with with the pandemic is that I do think that there was so much hope, even if it was naive hope. I felt like there was so much hope that the restaurant industry was at least starting. And even if that means starting to talk about it more and to worry about the optics of things that we had started. And I think we all thought a reckoning was coming and we were Uh psyched about the reckoning. But I think we all thought that the push for that was going to be social change and social justice, which it usually, I hate to say it usually isn't. Again, see capitalism. Sure.
2: Um, but yeah.
1: I, I think I think we sort of had this hopefulness for a kind of messy turbulence that ended in this great revolution of like joy and innovation and creativity and above all else fairness. And I don't think we ever thought that the thing that was gonna raise everything and be our reckoning would be what we're looking at now. I just think that's entirely not how we wanted it to happen. And unfortunately, I think the people who are suffering the most, the businesses that are being knocked out the most first, they're actually a lot of the smaller ones that were trying to do things innovatively and were trying to change the models. And that just like, that kills me.
0: We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Charlotte Druckman, author of Kitchen Remix, Don't Go Anywhere. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Carla Hall to today's guest Charlotte Druckman. Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the salt and spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just two dollars a month find out more and join the salt and spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine salt and spine is also proud to have storytelling partners like edible san francisco you can support local food media in your community right now with edible's new 80 recipe digital cookbook subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling recipes on how san francisco eats and find that new digital cookbook at EdibleSanFrancisco.com We're joined now by Paula Forbes, editor of cookbook newsletter Stained Page News. Hi, Paula. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, and we're here to talk about um, this month's May new releases, Um, and I think you have some maybe non-cookbooks that should be on our radar this month.
2: Yeah, I think that as we're getting into summer, maybe having a little bit more free time on our hands, hopefully that some books to read would be welcome. Um, um, and thankfully for Maine, we've got a few really, really good ones coming out that I'm excited about. Okay. So first um, I think I think a lot of people have probably heard about this, but I just wanted to take a minute to talk about David Chang's Eat a Peach. Um we have heard from David Chang, of course, um, in a lot of media and he has the Netflix show Ugly Delicious. Um, but this is really his, you know, first chance that he's coming out and talking about his life story. Um, so I think that especially for people who maybe have restaurant uh, aspirations or um, just want to like really dig into that chef's creative process stuff that I know people love reading about, Eat a Peach is going to be definitely one to have on your radar.
0: Yeah, I'm really intrigued by learning more about his life story and reading this book. I'm also intrigued by the title because I think we see so many peach references. Like we had Diana Henry's mm-hmm. as how... Um, diana henry's how to eat a peach um there's how to peel a peach there's all these peach books right that i think it's just mm-hmm. sort of inter- obviously he's got lucky peach in his um in his resume so i think that, mm-hmm. that that makes sense for him but i i was happy to see another peach titled book
2: yeah and i think like as you said that is just sort of a symbol of all things chang and Momofuku, so right yeah definitely have the peach there And then the last book I want to talk about um, is a book that a lot of people I know have been waiting for for a while now, which is Bill Buford's Dirt. Um, Bill Buford, of course, wrote Heat, um, and that was just a groundbreaking work um, talking about chefs and how restaurants work, and this is is his first big exploration of food since then. Um, As the title suggests, it sort of focuses more on, um, terroir and, and, uh, what it means to cook in a place. So Buford goes to France to learn how to cook, um, very particular styles of cooking and, and really just learns what it means to operate within this French, um, culinary history tradition, uh, rigor and comes out on the other side, I guess we'll find out. Gotta read the book.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm so happy you decided to share some of these memoirs with us. I think it is a great time to think about some summer reading and all of these sound Mm -hmm. really intriguing. Yeah, can't wait to
2: read
0: them. Well, thank you so much, Paula.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That's Paula Forbes, editor of Stained Page News. You can subscribe for her weekly cookbook news in your inbox at stainedpagenews.substack.com. And now back to our conversation with Charlotte Druckman, author of Kitchen Remix: Seventy Five Recipes for Making the Most of Your Ingredients. So let's move to your cookbooks.
1: Um, <laughs> oh, on a brighter note, <laughs> the cookbooks. <code laughs>
0: yes, everyone makes you, some
1: delicious things.
0: Yes, absolutely. Everyone <laughs> is these days. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Your first cookbook, uh, I think it was Stir, Sizzle, and Bake. Is that right? Yes. Yeah which was in 2016. How did you sort of go to to writing a cookbook? I think if I understand it, you were approached, right? Like I think...
1: Yeah, I was approached. I had no intention ever of writing a cookbook. If I just didn't. I um, I love cookbooks. As you know, I started the the piglet, the piglet yes, tournament. We're gonna um, get to that. I'm 52, and so it was. There was something that I love, but it was a kind of reverence that you almost hold something at a distance. Because I thought that I think of cookbooks. You know, it's such a different skill set. It's very different. to make a cookbook than it is to make an anthology or to make a, a, you know, memoir or any of those things. And um, I had not thought to do it. And I was approached to see if I would be interested based on an article that I'd written about baking bread on your stove without ever using your oven. It was for the Wall Street Journal. And I think what happened was, I think that the publisher who had, who approached me had just been seeing my byline a lot. And it was kind of that thinking of like, Oh, maybe this person would be interested in doing a book. And like, this fits what our market- marketing research shows, which is that cast iron is having a comeback. And like, this, this makes sense. And, right. um, so yeah, I was approached to do a baking book and a cast iron skillet. And I had two simultaneous thoughts when approached. One was, is this a joke? First of all, who would ever peg me to write a cookbook? And also, like, aren't those most cast iron cookbooks like camping books and like totally just, I don't know people making like flapjacks over a fire in the wilderness. I just did not have like pleasant thoughts about cast iron cookbooks. Um, But my second thought was literally immediately when asked exactly how I would do that book, I knew like in a snap, I was like, well, if I were going to do a book like that, I would do it like this. And then it would be like this. So wouldn't be like those other books at all. The funny thing about this, and, and I decided that because I had had that instinct, that that was a sign that I should do the book. I also this is what makes this all so humorous. I had no idea what I was doing because right. <laughs> my only cookbook experience prior to that was I co-wrote Anita Lowe's cookbook with her. Yes. And I was responsible for all of the sort of writing stuff and the and the and the overall structure and the sort of helping her find her voice and she was responsible for all the recipes. I That's ended up doing all the part. Yeah, I did her first cookbook, not solo, she did that all by herself. Um, uh, Cooking. Yeah, she did solo, solo. I kept telling her she did not need me, that she was a good writer the whole time. And so to see her do solo was, I proved myself right. Um, So for Cooking Without Borders, she was responsible for all the recipes. I had to go through the copy edits on those, which, if anything, showed me just what a beast it is to write and edit recipes. But I had not been involved in the recipe writing on that book. I had started to write and edit my own recipes for a lot of the work I was doing at The Wall Street Journal... Because I decided... What happens with me is I get bored. I decide I need a challenge. And I'm like, well, this is a thing I don't know how to do yet. I would like to do this. So I thought, I'm not cooking enough. I want to cook more. I should start pitching stories where I'm forced to test a recipe, maybe even at some point, come up with a recipe. That was that. So when someone said, do you want to write a cookbook? If you're coming from that, like you have no business writing a cookbook. But if you're someone who is bored and at that point was feeling not particularly challenged as a reader, by the way, or a writer of food content, you're kind of like, well, what else am I going to do? Maybe I should say yes to this cookbook. And then I have a challenge and I'll just figure it literally, I'll just figure it out. I do not recommend this to people (laughs) who do not like to just figure things out. (laughs) Right. Um, And to people who get set into panics by that sort of thing. For whatever reason, I seem to get off on it. That's fine. Um, anyway, that was how I ended up doing that cookbook. It was a two book deal. I taught myself basically how to write a cookbook. I also, even though I love to bake, taught myself how to bake in a way that was much more like you have to really think this through. <laughs> you have sure. to, you know, um, and and to write recipes that that did that. And it, it was a two book deal. Um, What was interesting about it was that the part of it that I really loved, honestly, I loved recipe developing. I loved being in my kitchen and seeing what would happen when I put things together so that after I stopped doing all the cast iron baking, I actually could not stop cooking. And I don't even mean that in the way of like making myself dinner. I mean, I couldn't stop getting ideas of things I wanted to figure out in the kitchen. And so I ended up doing Kitchen Remix before Stir skillet, uh, Stir Sizzle Bait came out in the fall of 2016. Uh-huh. I was already developing recipes for Kitchen Remix starting in April. It's four years actually to, to like almost to the, to the day really in April of 2016. I just could not okay. stop. Yes. Um, and it's funny because at that point, and even now, I think for me, cooking, not even necessarily is part of my job, but just for me, cooking feels like the most creative outlet, not writing. Sure. <laughs> I not think a lot of. Lighter. Yeah, I think, well, I just don't think of it as creative. I think of it as like, I'm paid to write and I write. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's it doesn't necessarily feel like a creative process. It feels like a challenge in terms of, I love to research and the logic of how you're going to structure something. Um, And women on food felt creative because it was more about synthesizing a lot of things, but the actual act of writing to me does not feel creative. The act of figuring out how to build a recipe, how to build a dish to me is like, I, I just think that's so creative. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that, that is the part of doing all of this cookbook stuff that I really love. You know, I can complain about like published cookbook publishing industry. I can complain about like all of the proofs and the edits and like the tedium of fitting it things on a page, but sure. just those moments where you're like, I think I want to put this together and this together and see what happens. I mean when when you're doing it just for fun, it's the best. When you're doing it because you have the pressure to like write a recipe for a cookbook, <laughs> those are a, a little less fun in it but like still I think it's I think it's fun yeah yeah,
0: and I think in Kitchen Remix you sort of bring the reader like into that creativity process right you're not yes. asking the reader to create their own recipes although it's certainly a thing someone could do but you're sort of yeah. opening the curtain into how you create recipes I, I wish pre-ups. they
1: would like if the, if someone would look at this book and be like oh but here are the things I want to do with prunes radicchio and pork or I want to take your prune radicchio and pork but I want to change the flavor, you know, composition of it entirely, I'd be like, yes, my book works. Yeah. Like, thank you. <laughs> Good. That's great. But like obviously, no, I mean the reason you write cookbooks is is knowing that there are people who just want the recipe and they want it to work. You know,
0: yeah. And this cookbook I think came from an experience you had with your brother. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That yeah. sort of
0: prompted you to think about how you think creative creatively around coming up with what to cook and how some people like your brother, maybe don't (laughs) know how to do that. Is that right?
1: Yeah. It's too bad that people aren't going to see this live because you you can see me rolling my eyes and shaking my head because my brother is like, basically I've realized a lost cause, like despite (laughs) the fact that he inspired this book (laughs) and that we had this lovely cooking lesson and everything like it, he's just not, He just has no interest in cooking at all. But it started with him. Um, There was, I think, I think it was like a huge snowstorm coming, but like in fall, like earlier than expected. And everything was supposed to close down in New York City. And it was after we'd had Hurricane Sandy. And I think people had kind of learned the lesson of Hurricane Sandy that New York could be just like faced with that kind of natural disaster. Sure. So my brother who I don't think had been particularly prepared for Sandy I think a lot of us weren't um freaked out a little bit about the alleged snow apocalypse and was like well what am I going to do if if like my bodega closes and what if I can't order like a chicken sandwich or like you know and I said well do, do you have anything you could cook and it was like dot 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 Silence, And I was like, well, you know, what if you just, you have some like just some spaghetti and you could buy a jar of sauce. Like I'm not the kind of person who's going to think that someone who's never cooked and shown no interest in it is suddenly going to be like making the Marcella Hazan sauce, even though again, I wish they would. Just like in a jar of sauce. And he was like, I mean, I, he's like, I I could get that. Like, okay. And he was like, and I'm like, well, do you know what to do with it? No. And I said, okay, it's very easy. You, you know, you would take the pasta You'd put it in boiling water, you'd warm up the sauce, and then you'd, you know, you take the pot. Okay. When we got to the part about the boiling water, we had another pause. And then he said, How do I do that? Okay. <laughs> he now, upon reading the introduction of my book where I described this, was like, I didn't say that, that didn't happen. I knew how to boil water. And I'm like, I need to tell you this. That's not a thing a person makes up. It's not a thing a food writer makes up. If you, the brother of a food writer and the child of a mother who cooked all the time and a child who loves food and went to all these restaurants, if you say that to me, guess what? It will shock me to the core. (laughs) And I will remember it and you might not, but trust me, it is not forgotten. So I was really upset by that. I did tell him how to boil water but I was just like, how is it possible? First of all, how is it possible that this person in particular doesn't know even how to do that? I, sure. you know, um, my dad, by the way, was our household pasta maker. He made pasta on Sunday nights. And so again, okay. it just, it's, and my brother had an actual visual of someone regularly putting pasta in boiling water. Like I really, when people say they were, they're shook, like I was shook. So that upset me. And it upset me in the sense that I thought, well, what if he couldn't get food anywhere? How would he feed himself? And this idea that there are people out there like my brother, there are also people out there who are sort of a step up from my brother who have a similar sort of like, they're very, you know, you can be well read. He's very well eaten. He's very well dined, right? That they can have all of that food knowledge. They might even read a lot of food publications. They might even have cookbooks that they read for... Pleasure for escape, or because they think it looks good to have cookbooks the same way it looks good to have a pristine kitchen. Sure. But they don't know how to cook. And the problem is that I think when they do cook, they want to eat stuff that's as exciting to them as the stuff that they like to eat when someone else cooks it. And yeah. I don't know if cookbooks do a very good job of reaching them. And so I think part of what I wanted to do with this was think about someone who is, if not my brother, someone who maybe you know, knew how to boil water, for example, but didn't cook that often, or maybe only knew how to cook a few things and was feeling bored and not particularly inspired to cook at home based on what was available to them by way of cookbooks or recipes. So yeah. that, you know, the the teaching part of of my session with my brother and just how I structured how we were going to do it, that was really what helped me kind of shape the book. But the impetus in terms of like, who is it I really want to help? I want to help people who want to cook and have and are curious eaters but are intimidated in the kitchen. How yeah. do you how do you bridge that gap? But then also, which is a thing, it's kind of ineffable. You can't, it's a really hard thing to teach. But how do you kind of show people how to be resourceful? You know, that sort of creativity And this is something I've said a few times, but We have a tendency, I think, now, especially in this age of viral recipes, where you learn how to make a dish. You learn how to make a specific roasted chicken or a chickpea stew, you know, but you're not learning how to cook chickpeas. You're not learning how to cook a chicken. So right. it's like the only thing you know how to do with this chicken is this one thing. And the only thing you know how to do with your can of chickpeas is this other thing. And it's like, how do you teach people that when you see a chicken breast, you don't have to just do that one thing to it. That there are these other things, there's other directions you could take it. And then similarly with a can of chickpeas, it's like, you don't have to... It's not just about the flavors you add to it. It's also literally the techniques you use, the how you cook it. You can grill it, you can fry it, you can bake it, you can roast it. You know, how do you kind of get people thinking on that level? Because I think that's really empowering. And I think that's how you become a more confident cook. Sure.
2: And so, so you sort oh, of yeah. you've
0: offered yeah. these sort of trios or combos sets of three ingredients throughout yeah. the book. Um yeah. and variation, three recipes that use each of those three um ingredients in different ways do you have a favorite trio
2: oh
1: man it's funny because i feel like they're the trios that are the most sort of like elegant representation of it where they're like really streamlined and the recipes are like really easy but then i have the ones where i'm like no but those dishes are so good and they're all so wildly different you know Uh i think um hmm. i think i have two favorites actually the sweet potato vanilla tahini
2: uh-huh.
1: favorite number one because it's, it's it's um one sweet and two savory recipes and the sweet recipe is a sweet potato pie but it completely turns on its head the way we think about sweet potato pie which is my whole point which is like every time we see sweet potato pie it's always the same set of spices right maybe sure. with some variation but it's that same kind of like pumpkin pie set. And once I had this framework of the three, and it was like, well, this has to showcase sesame and vanilla in addition to sweet potato, I got to completely mess with that set of flavors that we think you need to have in a sweet potato pie, which I love. And yeah. then there's the um, sweet potato casserole where I wanted to mess around with the traditional marshmallow topped right. you know, casserole. And I think that I actually think, and it's accidental, so I'm not going to take credit for it in some like brainiac way. I think it's genius. Um, I decided I wanted to put the, the sesame element, tahini in this case, in with the marshmallow because I figured it would cut the sweetness of the marshmallow. And Try. I thought a better way to do that if it worked, because I didn't know, like, again, this is me when I'm like, I wonder what happens when you do this. And this was what would happen if you put tahini and marshmallow fluff together? What if you used marshmallow fluff on the top of that casserole instead of actual marshmallows? Right, And it's amazing. Not only does it do they balance each other, but the texture of it, it get, becomes almost like nougat. So...
2: I yeah. absolutely
1: love, love, love that. And it's um it's also really balanced because again, I didn't want it to be too sweet. That dish, even though I love it traditionally, tends to be really sweet. So sure. the the sweet potato mash has miso and vanilla in it. And then the topping is the tahini and the marshmallow. Um, and then the third recipe in that are are baked and then sort of stuffed um sweet potatoes. And again it's just unusual because there's a tahini crema that goes on top and it has yeah. some sauteed leeks and it's just different it's a different preparation for something that would usually seem very simple and it's also very easy to make like those three things are are all very kind of like obvious things that we all know but just sure. in a very different flavor direction um, and then the second, my second one that I love, my second trio I love is the pork belly radicchio and prune because yeah. those dishes are just so totally different from each other. And yet those three ingredients have such assertive flavor, Like they're such assertive ingredients, all three of them in some way, that this idea that you could end up with three completely different things, just, I don't know. I think that that's very cool. And you also learn how to cook pork belly really like in three very different ways, which is I, again, like... The, the didactic side of me loves that because um, yeah. you, you you're doing a one pot thing where first you get the skin really crispy and then it essentially becomes a braise with okay. um, mm-hmm. flavors that are um, inspired by Chinese red cooking. so sure. but then they also have a few kind of Western things thrown in the pot. I mean, the radicchio prune thing is already a little western. And then um, the second dish, and the second dish actually inspired the trio. It was a salad that is really interesting. Sarah Jenkins, the chef, Sarah Jenkins in New York, who had porchetta and has porcina in the East Village. Uh, um, She had posted her lunch one day on Instagram and it had been a salad of radicchio and feta and prune with a like, I think with like some kind of lime vinaigrette. And it just looked delicious. It turns out she had been riffing on an Ottolenghi recipe, I later learned. But I sent this to a friend of mine who I was at that point, I was editing an essay of Kate Christensen, the food writer. Um, I was like, look at this. Doesn't this look so good? She was like, I'm going to make it. It looks so good. We just figured we'd figure it out from the picture. Like we didn't actually know the recipe, but it was just that combination of feta radicchio prune. And she made it and she was like, she literally, she was like, it was like an orgasm in my mouth. It was so good. And I was like, okay. So when it came time to do this, I had that in my head, but I thought, you know what would really set that salad over the top if you added like bacon to it, if you added pork to it. I was like, well, what if you had pork belly in there? And then I was like, yeah, so the trio could be pork belly, radicchio, and prune. And I was like, okay, that's it. And then the third recipe in that is inspired by actually a Japanese dish. Um, which is a very fast, almost like wok, sautéed preparation of of pork belly, but it's been really thinly sliced, which isn't a way we're familiar with it in American cooking. Um, So you're cooking it in a flash and you use kind of a marinade and then you cook it in that sauce and then you reserve the sauce and you use it to dress what would normally i think be a cabbage slaw but i just did it with radicchio and right. then it would be served with pickle usually you know like some form of pickle japanese pickle and i was like well, well i'm just going to pickle the plums so that's it's they're in such different directions but the cool thing is you you are learning how to do the pork differently in each each recipe which i think is yeah. really cool cuz i think you walk away being like oh, i know how to do pork belly yeah. now and like Three very different ways.
0: Yes, three different techniques. I love that. Yeah, yeah. So you alluded to the piglet, where show and cookbooks so yes. created Food 52. I feel country. like it's it's
1: like R.I.P. at this point. It it's is, like become right? this other thing. It's yeah, it's not the piglet anymore.
0: And it sort of <laughs> existed in its well, in in its sort of original form with variations for like about a decade, right? Yes, it, a decade. The, decade. There was
1: a de- we had a full decade of pigletry. Yeah. And
0: for folks who might not know, this is when this is a thing that you created at Food 52 that yeah. matches up cookbooks in like an NCAA bracket. Yes.
2: Style.
1: If, if anyone's familiar with um, the tournament of books on the website, The Morning News. I had been inspired by that. It's an, it's the same idea, the brackets with novels going head to head. And I just thought immediately when I saw it, oh, why not with cookbooks? It would be so much more interactive because you'd actually have to cook the book. Like there would be this added element of kind of, did it work? You know?
2: Um,
1: and I tweeted about it. This, it's such an amazing story. Amanda Hesser was a judge for the morning news. She tweeted her judgment. I went and read it and thought, oh my God, this competition is so cool. Why doesn't it exist for cookbooks? Sure. And I tweeted Amanda, who I we we had the same editor, but okay. I didn't know her. I mean, I really I had been reading her work. I'd been reading Cooking for Mr. Latte. Like to me, she was this like You know, figure this great figure I'd never met and looked up to. And she was like, Oh, yeah, that would be such a great idea. You know, and I was like, Yes. And we could call it the piglet. And it was like this whole thing. And she's like, Then basically emailed me and said, Well, would you be interested in meeting to talk about this? And like, I was like, Oh, sure. Like, that sounds, again, you can see a a theme here (laughs) me having a random idea or someone like inspiring a random idea. And then me being like, Well, I'm just going to go do it. Um, and so I ended up having this meeting with Amanda and Merrill. They had not launched food 52 yet. They were, a, they're going to be launching it in the fall. And we met in the spring. Um, And by the way, I had no idea what Food52 was. Amanda kept saying algorithm. And I was like, that sounds cool. (laughs) I
2: literally like, no,
1: no idea. I was just so excited that they wanted to do it. And they were like, we're launching this platform and we can, you know, how would you feel about doing the tournament on the platform? And I was kind of like, but why not? Because it's the difference between an idea that I had that was fun existing and not existing. Why wouldn't, why not? Um, And that was how the piglet was born. And really the first like 2 or 3 years before Food52 really blew up, it was like the 3 of us on my living room floor looking at all of these books and then you know picking them and then the more Food52 grew and the more successful it became, the less time they had and it really became me and Kenzie Wilbur working yeah. on it. Um, and Kenzie was really doing the heavy lifting on the editing. I would be more about... I loved picking all the books and just like generally directing traffic. Um, and yeah, and I I think you know there comes a point where Food 52 was almost... This is going to sound weird. It almost became too big for something like The Piglet, which is so indie. It's kind of like if you're trying to have a brand and you're trying to brand everything and you're also trying to reach a much more mass audience, something like that is hard to sort of... You almost don't want to see it adapt accordingly. I'm I'm sort of glad that we left it. It got left. I, I actually stopped working on it. I stopped working out on it after the ninth year, but like, okay. I was not sad to see it die. Cause I felt like in a way it had already, it had already kind of stopped being what it was. And in order for food 52 to sort of apotheosize, I don't think the piglet could have continued to be the piglet that I knew and loved. So like, I'm, I, I get it. Like, yeah, that yeah. is, that is the piglet. Yeah. yeah
0: you're happy with its existence as it was.
1: I am. I mean, I would have loved to have seen it continue as it was like the spirit of it as it was, if someone wanted to bring that back, you know, but, but I'm not interested in seeing it become like a mass thing where you would have to include popular cookbooks because they were popular that would kill me that was just not the point right. you know or where you would start curtailing judges in terms of how much they could write or how they should write like none of that to me would feel like it was in the spirit of the thing so if sure. someone wanted to keep it going as it was originally intended i would i would completely be on board sure. for that
0: yeah maybe it'll come yeah. back some
1: maybe some it will far. yeah <laughs>
0: Um, so obviously, you you co-created The Piglet. You've studied cookbooks. You've written cookbooks. What sort of elements do you think make a great cookbook?
1: I am such a stickler and you would not expect this, I think, based on the fact that I do love creative thinking and I love things that are whimsical. But I feel first and foremost with cookbooks that they I I really like I so strongly believe this. I think a cookbook, all books have functions, right? I mean, to some extent, but a cookbook's function is so much more practical and sort of logistic in the sense that it has to work. The recipes have to work. It has to be cookable, you know, and it has to be cookable for the people it's aiming to be cookable for. So... I am not a fan of cookbooks that feel aspirational to me in the sense that they cannot be cooked from by home cooks if they are being marketed to home cooks. This drives me bonkers. I lose sure. it. Like <laughs> I am not good with chefy chef cookbooks. I have issues with them, not because I think they're not beautiful or not well executed but because I think essentially they're being written for the line cooks who cannot afford to pay for them and then being sold to people who buy them and don't cook from them. So I, (laughs) that kind of sets me off in, in bad directions, but I really, yeah, I love to see books that, and again, this is actually kind of goes back to the piglet. I would always advise judges when they would say, how do we judge to?" books that are completely different, I would say you have to take each book on its word and see how well it lives up to it. So it's not even so much about, is this book better than this book? It did, it was this book better at delivering on its promise. If this book said that it was going to do X, Y, and Z, or if it, you know, kind of presented itself as a book that was going to accomplish the following few things for the, for the user, for the reader, how well did it do that? Like. And that's right. that's how I judge cookbooks. I'm like, okay, even if someone's like, I'm just going to do a cookbook on you know, how to cook cockles. Right. If that so, book is like an insanely good primer on how to cook cockles and also creative and shows me all all these different ways to make cockles. And then on top of that, if it's delightfully written, I mean, I'm going to love that book. Yes. Um, so I don't care necessarily. Obs- uh, things being obscure aren't an issue. It's more just like... Can people at home actually use this book? And by the way, if it's a book that's really informative and beautifully written, but you can't cook from it, then I just think it's a book about cooking or a food book. But I personally am like, it doesn't, it's not a cookbook. Okay. So I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. very sticklerish about this stuff just because I think, yeah, I, I feel like I want, I don't know, I, I guess I want people to feel like they got what they paid for. Like, I, you know, it's sure. like if you're going to go through the process of making, of writing recipes and then people aren't going to be able to cook them, what was the point?
2: Yeah. Yeah, like, totally.
1: And, and by the way, it doesn't mean every single person needs to be able to, you know, we have like niche, niche markets for, for people who want to do things. It's just make sure that those people can really use your cookbook. Sure. Yes. Yeah. And that that for me is like so important. You know, yeah. when people are like, oh, I just really, I'm so excited to write a cookbook because I just want people to understand my journey. I'm always like, oh, good Lord. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> okay, because yeah. that's
1: great. I'm happy to come on your journey with you. Right. But dude, <laughs> if I can't cook from your book, it right. failed as a cookbook. Yeah. Right. yeah. I'm the worst. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. It's a good I thing that. I was never a piglet judge. I think people I think <laughs> I think I would have upset people. <laughs>
0: um, last question before we end with our little game. Are there particular authors or specific cookbooks even that have been particularly influential to you in your career?
1: Yeah, the inter- cookbooks. Like
0: either specific come. books or just like authors. Yeah. Generally, well, for me,
1: and and I say this all the time, like a broken record, but for me, Dory Greenspan is the best living recipe writer. Period. Full stop. Yeah. It ends there. Uh Um, just the way that she anticipates the experience of a home cook, um, and the needs of a home cook, I think are, I think it's just extraordinary, but also I wish everyone did that. Um, you also, to be fair, you need to have a publisher and an editor who will give you the space a lot of times to be able to write that kind of information, you know, We also live in an age where things are like you have this page count and if it's not entirely essential and it can't fit on the page, we're going to cut it. So there's a little bit of a push-pull on that. Um, I also, I think Nigella Lawson, the way that she writes her recipes, first of all, her love of language. I mean, it's just such a pleasure. But she also, I talked to her about this. She really thinks about how she can continue to simplify her recipes and not simplify them for the sake of being like, look how streamlined I am. But again, for for the reader's use. So can I limit the number of bowls I use? Like, how can I make this so that it is it's most delicious, but most simple version of itself. Um, and I think that really, and then there are people who are just like, I'm so in awe again. I feel like I said this so many times about this book of Andrea Nguyen um, of mm-hmm. Vietnamese food any day, because yeah. I really think it was a mold breaker. I think for such a long time, there's been this idea that if you're writing about non-Western food, it can't be an everyday book. Like that, that doesn't, that that's not allowed or that doesn't fly. And I think what is so incredible about that cookbook is that it's actually an everyday book first. It's a Vietnamese cookbook second. That is such, I mean, it's, it's just a great cookbook. You want to make all that food. But yeah. I don't think you look at that book the way that I think the way that a lot of non-Western cookbooks are are marketed are as almost like project cookbooks. It's like right. this weekend we are going to make Chinese food, you know. Right, and I think. And there becomes this whole, like, now we must go out and get all the recipes and that, like, you know, all the ingredients. And then, you know, look at, look at us and how we tried this new thing. And isn't this so cool? And I just think what's so great about her book is that you want that book because it's things you can make every night that are just delicious. And then, oh my gosh, lo and behold, it happens to be Vietnamese food. And I just, I don't know. I, I'm just in awe of this. And I, I feel like. It's not that I don't think other cookbook authors are capable of that. I think a lot of it, again, this is the push-pull. It's like how people get pigeonholed. Um, I also think that Andrea is just such a good teacher so that you could also look at her past cookbooks. You could look at the foot cookbook. You could look at her tofu cookbook, which again, Mm -hmm. it's a bit more esoteric. But my God, if you want to make tofu or you want to learn to cook with tofu, it is. I mean, it's irreproachable. It's it's a Bible. Yeah. So yeah, I, she's she's someone else that I just think um is incredible. Yeah. yeah. And I guess just in terms of sort of like newer food, you know, because all of they're all seasoned, those three women are all seasoned. But I really love Marisota. I love her books.
2: Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, I love how she thinks about them. And I also love speaking of talking about sort of chefy chef books, I love when you see chefs do books that are actually like really home cook friendly. Um, And I know a lot of people have said this, but I just think six seasons is such a triumph because it just teaches you to cook a little bit above your, above your class of cooking. Yes. yes. Um, But in a way that isn't, isn't so much that it's daunting and it just teaches you these skills. It teaches you these flavor tricks. Like I just, yeah, to me, those are just really in terms of like admirable books. um, Yeah. And they're all, by the way, what they all have in common, not surprisingly, they're all highly cookable books.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. We always end with a little game. So I thought our game today would be based on Kitchen Remix. Um, Oh, good. We use our little cards here. So I'm going to draw for you, since we can't be in person, I'll I'll draw the cards for you. One from each of our four categories. um, Protein, vegetable, flavor, and then secret ingredient. And then if you want to pick three out of those four to work with, and that can be okay. your little trio oh and tell God. us how okay, we might okay. make a couple of recipes. <laughs> We're gonna put the creativity to the test. Okay, so protein is gonna Are be. Are you gonna do it
1: after me or is just me? Is that how does the game just work? You. Can we both do it? Okay, just wondering.
0: <laughs> okay, so chicken is a protein. Okay, let's see. Vegetable, I'm shuffling them a little bit, is tomato. Okay, for flavor, let's see, we have lemon. Oh, okay. No, like real wild cards yet but let's take a secret ingredient liver
1: oh no (laughs) okay Okay. so you
0: can throw one of these out if you want to get to a trio and then tell us how we might make a couple remixes
1: you know what's really interesting is i actually i although is it calf liver or is it chicken liver it
0: doesn't specify um it says from mammals fowl and fish so i think you get to choose
1: Mm. i don't know because i do love chicken livers
0: could do chicken livers we could just like merge these two They're Let's do chicken, chicken livers. livers
1: this is going to be a challenge but i'm kind of i'm excited about it
0: okay so we have chicken okay. livers tomato and lemon so tell us a couple remixes we might make
1: okay i have a weird idea forming in my head at this very moment which is what if you could do a sort of a meatloaf riff using chopped chicken liver
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Um, yeah. And you could use, I think a lot of lemon zest in it. Cause I think that's like one of the things about meatloaf is it kind of lacks a little brightness. And then you would do that kind of traditional, you know, the tomato glaze that you do on top. I think right. I would kind of try and do, which is, which, yeah, I think I would do that. Okay. I think I would do, I really love Eastern European Jewish heritage. I love chopped chicken liver. And uh-huh. I think I would like to do a chopped chicken liver, with maybe even almost like preserved lemon in it. Yeah. And a sandwich where you did it with sliced tomatoes. I actually don't think I would do anything to the tomatoes there. I just think I would like to do a chicken liver, like chopped chicken liver salad sandwich. Be excited about that. (laughs) And then, which is cheating a little bit (laughs) because I have a recipe for a, that's very different. The flavor profile is totally different, but um, I have a recipe for a pizza with chopped chicken liver chipolini onions and sage in stir sizzle bake. and I'm thinking you go in a flatbread direction again, where you do like a sauteed chicken liver with tomatoes so you get that kind of almost like sauciness. Uh-huh. and then maybe you put the lemons on the top with some fresh herbs so the lemons get you know sort of like roasted in the oven, yeah. like you slice them really thin. Those right. would be my three. How did I what? do? Okay, That's right. Great.
0: That was amazing. Yeah. You like didn't hesitate at all. You're, you're yeah, I love really it. I, I just think
1: it's really fun. Whether, <laughs> whether or not these things work is like a whole other story. But like the sure. part where you're just like, what could I do with that? And then it's also fun to hear what other people would do. You know? Yes. Yeah. I would so definitely that- put bacon in the meatloaf too, just telling you right now. Sure. Of course, yes. Just <laughs> so, so you're aware. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, awesome. That was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlotte. It was I so fun it. To have you.
1: It was my honestly my pleasure. I just want to say two things. Number one, yeah. during this pandemic, just being able to have conversations like this really, like, it is the joy of my day and i used to hate facetime like i don't love like seeing myself i'm like so fully over it now just cuz i'm so happy to see other people's faces and connect but right. also it is it's such a hard time to launch a cookbook. And I am so grateful to the people in my community who have supported me in this. It's like, I know that we tend to do it a lot of times just because it's what you do when a new cookbook comes out, but it's just especially meaningful right now. So thank you.
0: Yeah, our pleasure. We're yes. so glad to have you. Thank, thank you.
1: you.
0: Yay. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes from Kitchen Remix for potato chip crusted chicken with arugula pesto and eggplant beef burgers with parsnip relish. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Ryan Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Paula Forbes, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the
2: show that we recommend.
1: Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley.
2: And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave.
1: And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks.
2: On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town.
1: The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now, but if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen.
0: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.